Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth here at Petro Medical with another fantastic guest for Hills and Valley. Today, um, I'm joined by a fellow Texan. Uh, I was, I've been connected with him for quite some time on LinkedIn and uh, somebody who uh, is, you know, comes from both the clinical world and the innovation world. And that's Dr. Lance Black. Lance, thank you so much for, for joining us. How are you doing today? Great, Omar. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Now, you know, I know that, uh, you know, people heard your bio earlier uh, in the intro, but, you know, if you could just kind of give us a little intro to, you know, who you are and the role that you you serve today. Sure. Uh, right now, my title is Associate Director of TMC Innovation. TMC stands for Texas Medical Center. Uh, as you mentioned, we're in Houston, Texas, where the world's largest medical center, TMC, exists. And we're here to support startup companies by building density of digital device and therapeutic companies here in Houston. That's fantastic. And it's such a unique thing because uh, most people don't think of uh, hospitals or even medical centers as hubs for innovation, especially for the medical technology and medical device world. And so that's something that's very interesting. And of course, I'm a little biased being from Texas, but you know, TMC is one of the great medical centers in the world. And it really is massive. I mean, when you drive past it, a lot of people mistake that as downtown Houston. I'm like, no, that that's all medicine right there. Um, only in Texas, right? It's bigger and better. Um, but, you know, let's start out. I'm curious, what's your story? I mean, how, where did you grow up? Uh, you know, what was life like where that was? And how, how did you get into medicine? Yeah, so I guess we'll go back to Lafayette, Louisiana, where I'm from, which is Cajun country. Uh, and so I grew up a fan of science and math. I was one of those nerdy kids that got into it and uh, never left. I actually went into uh, undergrad with the expectation that I was going to build the next Terminator robot, but Terminator for good. It was going to take care of people, not, not terminate them. <laughs> and so, you know, I went in with just complete naivete and not understanding what it meant to be an engineer or physician for anything for that matter. And just uh, really enjoyed my time as an undergraduate. And there was this one class that fundamentally like galvanized what I wanted to do with my life. And that was what's traditionally called capstone in the engineering curriculum. In your final year, you solve a real world problem using all the engineering principles that you've learned over the previous years and, and build and prototype a solution. I had the chance to meet a post-polio syndrome patient. So this is a patient that was inflicted by polio earlier in his life, recovered, and then later on developed symptoms that resulted from the initial infection. In his case, he was falling every couple of steps. So his leg would just give out and he wouldn't really know when it was going to give out, but occasionally it would just stop working and he would fall over. And so he went to his physician at the time and he said, you know, what can I do with this? Um, this leg, I want to be able to walk around and get in and out of my car. You know, his job was a land surveyor. So he had to do a lot of traveling, a lot of walking. And the only option that he had at the time was a stiff leg brace something that was going to keep his legs straightforward and so that he can walk. But now he's walking with an awkward gait, made him uncomfortable, hurt his back, was really difficult to put on and take off. Uh, and so he came to us, this little student group, and he said, what can you do for me? And so we took the idea of a seatbelt, you know, a seatbelt where you can have full range of motion if you're going slowly. And then as soon as there's a high accelerative force, it locks you in place. So we took that same idea and applied it to the knee. And so it allowed him to have a normal gait. And when it sensed an accelerative force that was beyond normal, it caught him, it locked in place. And that really, that opportunity just culminated in my mind. This is, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to seek out healthcare problems and solve them with interesting engineering solutions. And so that's what spurred me to uh, go into medical school, actually. And so that was my next step. I went to LSU in New Orleans where the great charity hospital was. And uh, spent you know a lot of time trying to figure out where could I do that best, what specialty, what opportunity, uh, where I'd be able to to really use my skills as an engineer. Um, at the time, I joined the military to help you know pay for med school, but more importantly, because I wanted to you know give back to my country and understand how to you know how I can bring healthcare into into the service. Um, they needed primary care physicians more than anything else. Uh, so I went to primary care and as a family medicine physician, I trained 
at Anglin Air Force Base in Florida. So that was my next stopover. Uh, really enjoyed the training, enjoying getting to learn a little bit of everything from how to deliver a baby to do general surgery to taking care of patients on the floor. Love that. And then uh, went to Langley Air Force Base next, which was my first station. So I was there for four years. And at Langley, I deployed several times overseas, just saw a different side of the world, really saw some really interesting things operationally and how the front line uh, encounters so many barriers and difficulties when it comes to taking care of their health. You know, not only are they healthy enough to go overseas, but how do we manage them if they do get hurt in battle? And so that was that really kind of opened up my eyes and how I can apply engineering problems or process engineering into healthcare. But at the same time, I was growing frustrated with the technology I was using day in and day out. And I, I don't want to say I was burned out, but what I would say is like, I wasn't getting excited about the next patient I was seeing. It was almost like it was just a repeat pattern. I had to see 25 patients a day. I was being pushed to the next patient, no matter, you know, if I had five or 10 minutes to spend with them, and I can already tell, like, this is not what's going to work out for me long run. I, I tell people jokingly that being trained as an engineer kind of ruined me as a physician because I was seeking out problems and mm -hmm. I wanted to be creative and, 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 you know, submit new solutions, which is not what you're paid to do in medicine. You're paid to put into practice, you know, great research that has already been taken, already been done and, you know, apply that in the real world setting. So you don't really get paid to be creative. In fact, you don't want to be too creative because you can risk patients. Um, so I, when I was completing my military commitment, four years later, I said, I'm, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to, you know, give up clinical practice and really try to create my own path where I can balance medicine and engineering. And that's when I came across some programs out of Georgia Tech, uh, one in industrial design, which I did for a year, and then one in what's called biomedical innovation and development, which is kind of a, you know, bench to, to bedside sort of uh, engagement where you're really learning how to take a concept forward and, and, and commercialize it. At the time, I joined a product development firm that worked with innovative physicians, prototyping and building interesting devices. And uh, did that for three years. And now I'm here in Houston for the past four years where I have family. So it made a lot of sense for me to come here. But not only that, Houston was building something new. And I was really excited about being part of that, that process. And that's TMC Innovation. It's only been around for about six years. And so I kind of joined it at its very uh, formative years, four years ago. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier, like you, people don't think of health systems as a place where innovation occurs, but it should be, right? That's, that's, that's where, that's the proving ground. That's an opportunity for us to validate those technologies, to really be in the grassroots with the patients, with the physicians doing the work and understand whether or not this technology has legs. I think oftentimes we as innovators, you know, stay within our four walls and, and come up with great ideas and really don't give it uh, the proof that's needed in such a highly regulated field like medicine. Um, so that's a, a very long-winded answer to your question of where I'm from and who I am. But uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty vacillating and think about kind of where I've, where I've come from. No, no, and not, not long at all. I mean, look, that's, that's your story and it's really fantastic. And you know, I think, um, you know, it's funny because I, I read, you know, so myself, I actually went to medical school in Texas Tech, but I, I left about halfway through, but I've been in touch with many of my friends who are now residents or actually many of them, they're no, they're no longer residents, they're practicing. Um, and I was speaking to another one the other day. And, you know, I think there's a lot of young physicians and, and old and at various points in their careers where they're trying to supplement their uh, like day job or also look for new areas to go into. Um, and it's really overwhelming because one, you don't really learn about these things in medical school or residency. And so it's almost kind of like uh, purely out of luck. Like if you happen to know the right person or you got exposure to it. Otherwise, I feel like there's so much great um, talent and, and great, uh, great minds out there that they're just, they have not been exposed to other opportunities. That's kind of why I wanted to have you on because I just, I just know that how many how many physicians might listen to this and that this one interview will be that callous to say, I can be like Lance Black, like, I think I'm going to do it, you know, whether they reach out to you or they just, you know, simply go and look at your LinkedIn and say, wow, like, this is like he, his early years is very much where I am now. Like I can actually explore this. I think it's, it's incredibly important. I, I have a bad reputation of talking people out of going to med school. And it's not that I don't respect and value the career that so many people have chosen to take. I do think we need great people 
to do that and, and, to, and to follow that calling. I think oftentimes though, we get a little glamorized in knowing that we got accepted to med school. We have the potential yeah. to go to medical school, the potential to be a physician. Those things can be hard to, to kind of see through and really understand at the end of the day, what, you, what are you gonna be doing? And is it something that you want to do for the next 20, 25 years of your life? I really, you know, and I stress this in my, in my own life, I really wanna do something that I enjoy. I don't want to do something where I'm looking forward to the day that I can retire or the day that I can do something that I really love and enjoy, right? I wanna, I wanna enjoy the present. And I, I feel like I found that it did take, it took a long time. I, I tell people it was almost like going through a divorce. Like you put so much time and sacrifice into healthcare medicine. By the time you get to the point of where you feel like you made it, the last thought on your mind is, okay, it's time to leave, right? Like if you're, and I've been told you're crazy. What are you doing leaving? Well, why would you get out of this? You just spent the last eight years of your life devoted to training for this moment. And now you're ready to go. And, you know, it took me a few years. It wasn't like an easy decision by any means. And, you know, I still long for some of the days that I had as a practicing physician and, and do miss it. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's more about just trying to understand what motivates me as a person and what's going to really bring the best out of me and challenge me. And it wasn't happening in clinical practice. Not that I can't for most people or some people that choose that career. Um, but, you know, listening to what and I'm not the kind of person that says, follow your dreams. I'm not like that. I'm just basically saying that, you know, I know what motivates me uh, and I know what's going to drive, drive me and challenge me. And I think I found that through, through innovation, through working with entrepreneurs and being in this space. So I'm, I'm very happy that I found it, uh, whether or not it's a good fit for, for a lot of people, that's something that they have to determine for themselves. Right. Um, but absolutely. yeah. No, absolutely. I think, you know, and I, I'm right there with you. I, I I feel like, especially with a lot of the students who I mentor out of Stanford and Berkeley, I I've talked I've spoke I've talked a few out of going to medical school because I think it's one of those things like, unlike let's say I'm gonna go and be an engineer or an entrepreneur or something, people will ask like, okay, make sure you like it. Or the moment you announce to family and friends, hey, I'm gonna be a doctor, everybody just gets behind it, and there's this there's a a dopamine rush and a lot of cognitive biases that's pushing you in that direction. Sure, and you know. And people ask me about this and I say, unlike, like, let's say, you know, you, you go and I mean, first of all, there's four years of medical school, then there's training, which is three to 10 years, depending on what you do. Right. But unlike, let's say law, you know, I have plenty of friends who went to law school. I think law school is three, yeah, three years. So they did, okay, three years. But when they graduate, if they don't want to practice law, it's like, oh yeah, I can go consult. I can be in business. There's a variety of things. It's not the same thing with medicine. It's kind of like, I got the MD, so I got to find a way to like, just practice medicine. And I think a lot of people, and it's not surprising I think the AMA or somebody, um, some uh, large firm, maybe it was Gallup, they surveyed physicians and something like 48% or 49% a few years ago said that if they had to do it over again, they they wouldn't, right? And I think that says something. And I think it's important to, you know, it's a very noble calling, but I think it's really important that we make sure that people who go in there are not going in there purely just for money or for title or anything it's because they genuinely want to help. And a lot of times when you talk to people, I was one of those people. I wanted to help help people and everything, but when I was in med school, I realized that I could see myself doing other things, and that was around innovation, and that tipped me off as to, yeah, like I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna do patients any favors if I stick to this, and if I'm not gonna do myself any favors because, again, like when you mentioned, you get out the other end, and the next thing you're thinking of is like, oh, I can't wait to start doing like this other thing later on in life. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the decision that the frustration that physicians face are things that you know, through enabling technologies, we can, can help with, right? It's the practice of medicine that people enjoy. It's, it's not the administrative burden, the paper pushing, the lack of time you have to spend with your patients. Those things add up and certainly contribute and if not completely cause burnout, those things can also be, you know, alleviated through enabling technologies. And so I feel like part of what I do is helping physicians to do the practice that they signed up for, right? So instead of spending time doing things that are not meaningful to them, they're able to, to get some of that time back and, and apply it in a way that's re relevant to the clinical aspect of Absolutely. what they're doing. So, so I, you know, I think it comes full circle a little bit. And, and you're right, I think everybody has to make that decision for themselves and, and it's, it's tough. What I think is it's challenging to know is, is it takes a long time to get to the point to where you you're actually understand what you're gonna be doing, right? It's not, something you can just go try out for six months, uh, I like it or I don't like it and then make a decision. 
you have to put in at least seven years time to even experience what your life is going to be like. And by the time you've done that, you've gotten so much sunk cost, right? That you're not going to want to go back because it doesn't make sense financially. It doesn't make sense time-wise. You're, you know, you're at a point in life where most people are in the middle of their career. They already have seven years experience working for a business. Most people have maybe even made several career you know, advancements. The last thing you want to do is start over. Absolutely. I'm just, you know, just being maybe stupid enough to, to take that chance and, and do a difference, uh, do something different. I, I will say, though, you know, with all that being said, having an MD, having that experience certainly has opened up doors for me to do what I want to do now. Uh, so, so I don't regret it. Would I do it over? No way. But, <laughs> you know, it has it has served me well. So I, I don't want to be overly pessimistic either. No, and I think there's something to be said about that. I mean, one, uh, you resisted like one of the most common fallacies, which is sunk loss. You're, you, you've gotten so far down the rabbit hole. It's like, oh, I, I don't want to, you know, leave all this time that I dedicated to it. But I think the, the bigger thing is that you probably, there's an intuition in you that you wanted to follow this. And so, I mean, you know, I want to get to some of the great projects and innovations you're doing at Team C, but just really quickly, especially for some of those physicians that are listening to this, um, how did you, what would you recommend just to get started? If, if let's say it's a physician who's an out, a great friend of mine, uh, he's a great example of this. Uh, his name's Scott, but um, his thing was, you know, he, I think he was feeling a little bit burned out from clinical medicine and wanted to explore options because he has that, you know, entrepreneurial, like innovators itch. What's the, what's the, what's the best place to start if you're that physician? Yeah. I, so there's so many opportunities for physicians who are full-time in practice to work with startups. I think I would focus on building relationships with entrepreneurs, uh, talking to those that are doing something that's interesting to you, maybe in your field and serve as an advisor. At least it could be informally, it could be casually all the way to being a you know chief medical officer part-time. Certainly there's, there's options there. But to dip your toe into it, yeah, an informal advisor is something that's, I don't want to say easy to do, but people are looking for physicians to support them. Uh, I think research is another great opportunity. I think a lot of physicians are involved in some incredible research that has led to technologies that ultimately get spun out into companies. There's, there's those companies looking for additional clinical partners. I mean, that's part of what I do day in and day out is looking for the right clinician who seeks out those kind of opportunities. So I think there's a lot. I, I honestly didn't know about the startup world until I got out of clinical medicine. Mm. We oftentimes, you know, as a clinician, we're just so much buried in the weeds. I don't even have a LinkedIn profile. Like, I don't care to meet people. Like, I just need to see the next patient, right? I'm not even understanding or thinking about all this thing that, that's surrounding me. So taking time to explore other industries is, is vital if you're, if you're feeling burnt out. You know, I think some of the the, the most brilliant physicians and those that are doing the best job have a side gig, whether it be, I like to paint on the weekends or it's I'm doing this great stuff as an advisor for this startup company. Mm -hmm. um, it's something outside, not completely outside of medicine, but outside of the clinic that allows their brain to just kind of refocus, right. And not be overly uh, concentrated on just, you know, patient care. And I think that's, that's healthy. For anybody so too and and you know it's part of our you know the the medical culture that we were trained in which is the one thing that i love about medicine and, and the training and there's a lot of bad things to say about it but on the on the positive side is this um theme around not only continuing education but i mean when i was a young kid my dad was a surgeon and i noticed that every doctor i talked to you know they were really passionate like their their hobby was their work but outside of that some of them were really into history some of them like my uncle, my uh, uncle who had passed on, he was a cardiac surgeon, but on the side, he was really into sculpting. And so, yeah. and, and they knew everything about it inside and out. And I think it's so important, not just for physicians, but every profession, but I'll be honest with you, it, I'm hard pressed to find another group of people outside of, let's say, physicians, uh, uh, nurses, you know, people who work in the hospital who work harder and longer hours. Like it's, it's, it's a very, very rough and, and, and um, difficult job. You're right. Yeah. And it's, it's not one that's easy to just say, I'm going to do this part-time, right. Or I'm going to do it four days a week out of five. Uh, yeah. You're, you're oftentimes on call 24 seven, even if you're not on call, you're thinking about it or you're, you know, clearing up some of your notes from clinic. It's, it, it's, a, it's long hours and it's really tough to add any kind of extra work to that. And so that's why I think having a creative outlet is ever that much more important. 
I, you know, I do think too, though, that we, we, as type A personalities, that's wants to be perfectionists, we tend to overwork ourselves mm-hmm. when in reality, there are opportunities for you to cut back. There are opportunities for you to seek out other ways of being employed as a physician that doesn't require 24 seven uh, focus, you know, I, absolutely. I, I think that's, I think that's a, a lie that we tell ourselves sometimes that I have to be working this much. Um, but it really is, there's, um, you know, one physician that, you know, who I'd inter- interviewed, uh, he was, he, he was the chief of, uh, uh, heart failure, uh, heart failure and therapies at, uh, Kansas university, uh, was Dr. Andrew Sauer. And he just recently, you know, he built that program from the ground up at a very young age. I think he started when he was 33 or 34, but, um, he stepped back and handed the torch off to somebody. And he, he writes a lot about this on LinkedIn about, you know, about burnout and then refocusing on what's important, his health, his family. And I think that, you know, the medicine, especially residency is very much like the military. And there's a lot of badge of honor in terms of how hard you're working, the sleepless nights and everything. But I think the overglorification of that lifestyle leaks into like post your, your practice post residency. And I think it's so, it's really important for physicians to hear somebody like you, somebody like Dr. Sauer write about it and be vulnerable and say, you know, like, you're not going to lie on your de- deathbed and, and say, man, like, I wish I wrote a few more manuscripts to submit to, to, to New England Journal of Medicine. You know, you're going to think about the times that you should have just, you know, slowed down a little bit, spend more time with your family, spend more time with, for yourself even. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, when you come out of residency, it, it, it's not like it's done, right? You're like, okay, I'm a clinician now. I'm going to do things. You, you take, it takes years to establish your clinical practice. It takes years to establish not just your acumen, but more your, your, your clinical style, right? Like, how, you know, how, how am I going to interact with patients in this time frame? How am I thinking about, you know, um, when they're going to come back? So things that you're not necessarily taught in residency always, or at least not into the extent where you have enough volume underneath your belt. So, so you are in a constant learning state, I guess is the point, right? It doesn't end at residency. Some people think it's after training, you know, you're good to go and practicing physicians is practicing. Um, so you, you, there's probably not going to be a time when you don't feel like you're under the gun and you're trying to just get caught up or you're trying just to stay above the water. And so that's, that's why I think it's the toughest, right? You feel like you're always under pressure. And when you're in that mode, your brain is in defense mode. It's kind of fight or flight, right? I'm just trying to survive. Like, this is not about, uh, you know, trying to find something else to put on my plate. This is just about trying to stay above water so I can just hold on to this job. Um, but so it took me a little while to get to the point to where I'm like, okay, that's not what this is about. I don't want to be in this fight or flight response. Now I took the extreme measure and just left clinical medicine, but I think there is that those are, there's a point in time when you can say, I'm just going to stop working seven days a week. I want to work six days a week. So, mm-hmm. so I, I think it, 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 that's what I think physicians come to realize, but they're not really mentored uh, in that way. They come to realize that on their own. And it takes years to get to that point. I wish someone had told me, you know, hey, it's going to take you three or four years after residency just to get your feet underneath you. And just before you feel comfortable seeing 25 patients a day, you know what to do and you know how to move next. And then you have that, that kind of comfort of consistency where, you know, it's like when you first start learning to drive a car, your, your hands are attending to, your eyes are focused, you don't dare turn on the radio or take a drink of water because you're so concerned, you're just learning how to drive. And then, you know, six months later, you're kicked back, one hand's on the wheel, you know, you're looking around, you're drinking, you're doing whatever. It, it takes time. And I think that's, that's kind of what I didn't realize. Uh, and it was, it's frustrating because you spend so much time getting to that point. Um, but yeah, definitely here to encourage people that it's not always that way. And, and you should take the time as soon as you feel comfortable to do so, to, to really explore their options. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, before we shift, because uh, I, I want to cover some of the stuff, the, this, the uh, t- uh, projects around innovation you, you guys are pursuing. But I think, you know, your advice earlier is, is really spot on, which is just, I think, simply start just by, you know, looking, you know, checking on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, I think exposure is a big thing, just having a conversation with, with somebody. And I think that's, that's the most important thing is that all the solutions to the problems that you think are out in the world, that I think all the answers are in your head. You just need the right thing to kind of turn that like light bulb on that you didn't know was there. And then you yeah. just kind of go um, 
but just to kind of shift a little bit, you know, uh, I want to hear about some of the, um, you know, the projects and, and more, more or less the program, the innovation program that you guys have at TMC. What is that like? What does that entail? Yeah. So, so TMC Innovation is all about building density of healthcare startups in Houston. And it's not, it's not this economic development play where we want Houston to be this, the next city to, to come to. It's because we recognize this extraordinary, unique value that exists within the Texas Medical Center. We talk about it being the world's largest, but really when you break it down, what it is, it's a collection of independent health systems that are all co-located. And as you mentioned, people mistake it for downtown Houston because it's one building after another building. What you're looking at is 21 hospitals within two square miles. You're looking at multiple academic institutions. You're looking at research organizations, all dedicated to advancing healthcare education and research. There's nothing like it on the planet. And I, I try to, I can't explain it to people enough, but I'm like, imagine if you had five Mayo clinics all just wrapped up into one geographical region. That's what CMC is. We, we support over 10 million patient visits a year. They empl it employs collectively 115,000 people. Um, there's a surgery done every two or three minutes. There's a baby born every 20 minutes. The statistics are just unreal. It's really on another level when it comes to healthcare delivery. There is no comparison. And so recognizing what we have in Houston and realizing that this should be the place where entrepreneurs not only just start to grow their companies, but come to validate their technologies. That's where TMC Innovation really came into play. And that's where, you know, as a brainchild of our CEO at the time, Dr. Bobby Robbins, who came from Stanford, recognized like there's some great stuff going on the West Coast. There's some great stuff going on the East Coast. There is no reason why that can occur tenfold here in, in the Texas Medical Center. And so at that time, we started a biodesign program. We started an accelerator called TMCX. We started to have co-working space called X+. Uh, we started a number of different programs and projects, including corporate partners on our campus that really created this uh, magnet, if you will, to attract companies in the med device space, particularly, as well as the digital health space. Now, we're in the cancer therapeutic space, thanks to a grant that was given to us by Secret, which is a Texas-based organization focused on research and cancer. Um, and what we do is we were heavily, heavily focused on company formation, on getting companies traction within the med center. What I mean by that is a meaningful agreement or an engagement between startup and health system that's going to advance the technology that much further. If it's a clinical trial site, it's a joint development opportunity, if it's a pilot study, whatever you can imagine to validate the technology, we are seeking out those opportunities on behalf of our companies and quite frankly on behalf behalf of this the startup uh, sorry the health systems as well um we they we know that they want to be innovative and we want to be able to serve that desire by bringing well-vetted technologies to the forefront to their doorstep they get you know inundated with requests that they can't filter through so we do a lot of that filtering like hey you should really pay attention to this company this is what's going to be the next best thing in five years. And they got to, they had their stuff together, right? So, so, so think about doing something with them. And so it starts with us working with our health systems, understanding their problems and understanding their areas of interest, and then bringing together startup companies that can serve and solve some of those problems. And then trying to find that right match. So a lot of what we do is like a dating service. And then once there's that match, how do we accelerate those discussions to culminate into a relationship, whether it be clinical trial, et cetera. And so that's what we work, our team works very hard in doing is not just finding the right stakeholders, but what does a startup need to have in place so that they are in a position to have an enterprise level conversation, right? It's, um, as I'm sure you know, working for Petrero, it's one thing to convince a private clinic to adopt your technology or even a small community hospital because the stakeholders there are maybe easier to access. It's a completely other thing to get a health system that you know employs 15,000 people to get to pay attention oh, yeah. to a small company, right? Absolutely. And so that, that's what we specialize in. We specialize in startups um, getting the attention they deserve in the enterprise health system market because we have so many right next door to us that we serve happily. Uh, folks like the Texas Children's Hospital or Baylor College of Medicine, 
or MD Anderson or Houston Methodist or Memorial Hermann. I can go on and on and on. There's so many that are co-located. And the great part about it is they're collaborators, but they're also competitors. So there is that market. They there. definitely are competitors, especially yeah. like cardiac surgery space. I, I know Cooley and 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 uh, and DeBake have long passed, but that rivalry is still there. <laughs> I don't oh, care what anybody says. 100%. And you know what? <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. That that competition, you know, it breeds some very interesting innovation opportunities. So uh, we play off of that, and we, we we totally respect it and understand it. But you know, the reason they want to adopt technologies is to beat out their neighbor, right? So so we're okay with that. Uh, and so the way, that's kind of how we advertise it. Is it's not just a, this kumbaya health system that everybody thinks the same way. It's a competitive marketplace. It's a microcosm of what's happening in the world, right? And if you're going to validate your technology, why not do it with an AMC, you know, an academic medical center right next door to a VA hospital, right next door to a private nonprofit? All right there. Yeah, it's all right there. And especially, yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense, too, because, you know, not only the high patient volumes and the, and the high procedural and, and therapy volumes, but also Houston is an international hub. So you have a variety of different uh, case presentations. A lot of major surgeries are done there. My father um um uh, had he he actually had his uh open heart there uh with uh Hazem Safi uh over at Memorial Herman and so there's there's all these great opportunities there I have a question and I don't know if this is the right way to think about it but so you know one what it sounds like is very much a TMC acts like uh, a Y Combinator and you know essentially for those listening that Y Combinator is the kind of like the Harvard of incubators they Airbnb Dropbox five stars card they all came out of their Reddit um, so you guys work with founders to essentially scale and, and, and get into place like a system and a team to start doing that. But at the same time, it sounds like you also have a way to take founders who have a really good idea, maybe some patents and, some, and, and a minimally viable product, but also match make them with the right teams to start growing that. And you essentially provide an ecosystem. Is that correct? Well, through our biodesign program, we actually hire what we call fellows right now. Essentially, they serve as entrepreneurs and residents. They come to us without even an idea. We're, we're betting on their potential, right? We're betting on the fact that they have the, great, they have the right experience. They have the right passion and the grit to actually build a company. And then we form companies from scratch. And over the course of the year, they spend time identifying unmet needs. They take one of those needs and then they solve it by developing a novel technology on their own. And then they form a company. So, so we're we're at the very, very beginning stages of things for sure through our biodesign program. I mean, through X or Accelerator, you're right. It's more companies that have already demonstrated at some point the validity of their technology. And now they're coming to us to partner further with clinical partners. So it's a little bit of a later stage. Generally, those companies have either raised seed funding, financing, mm-hmm. or they're even as far as Series A. So it's a little bit more advanced, I'd say. But but yeah, so we're, we're in the business of, of company formation and, you know, later stage company densification, I guess you could say. Uh, what about, you know, so here, here's, I mean, this is all more often than not the kind of calls I usually get from physicians that I'm connected with on LinkedIn is that I get a call and it's a physician who's, you know, more often than not, it's usually a surgeon. Surgeons, I think they, they naturally have a tendency to tinker and think of like new ways to do things, but you know, there's a variety of physicians who do that. They call and say, hey, I, you know, I'm always doing Google patent searches. I have this idea I might patent it, but then I don't know what to do with it. So could, if it, could somebody like that come to you guys and say, hey, here are the patents I filed for. I own them, but I, I don't know how to raise money. I don't know how to engineer. I don't know how to put a team together. Can you, can you help me? We do that all the time. Uh, we have physicians always asking us questions just like you described. And what we provide them is more or less a sounding board. And then we help direct them to not waste their time. Like, here's the next step you should really think about doing, right? Uh, we have now, over the course of six years, culminated a network of professionals that we can also point them to. You know, you're right. You should start thinking about a patent. And here is a law firm that works with startups and people just like you in the med device space. So we can provide them that next step and that next level to consider. We, we value very highly clinician input, uh, nurse, physician, even hospital administrator, because we also recognize that's where our, our companies will have the opportunity to have access to their patients that they're trying to help, right? So, so we certainly open our doors really wide for anybody that has ideas in the clinical space. We, we wanna be able to provide that level of support. 
And, you know, quite frankly, we've seen so much over the course of our applications for X, over the course of our biodesign companies, we've seen thousands of companies. So chances are there's a proxy that we can point you to, to think about, you know, this is how they've done it. Consider this, look at it this way. Um, and so we, we do provide that service for our clinicians. We don't have a, a formalized program, but what we do have is a community that, that often comes to us and tries to understand what are, the, what are the next steps. What we see a lot of and what we want to avoid is a lot of wasted time, money, and effort on things that don't really have a high potential for growth and for you know, development into a commercial entity. Uh, and so that, that's where we feel it's our responsibility to help guide those young innovators or you know, novel uh, technologies from step one. That's fantastic. And, you know, I'll definitely like leave it in the show notes, but I'm sure, so TMC has, has a website for a lot of physicians essentially to check out and, and just get access to some, you know, some materials and some resources. Absolutely. Yeah. TMC.edu forward slash innovation uh, has all information on our programs, on our space, on the resources that are available to them. My contact information is on there. They can certainly, you can drop that in the notes as well. Please reach out to me directly. Happy to point you in the right direction. Uh, and take it from there. Definitely. And, and just right now, like some of the, um, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I have to ask this question. Are there, are there any specific uh, technologies or, or, or companies or projects that, that have you a little, you know, a little bit more excited than, than some of the others? Like what, what's kind of top of mind for you, if you, if you don't yeah. mind sharing? Sure. You know, this is a hard question and I don't have favorites. You love all, yeah, yeah. I, you, you love all your, <laughs> babies, really. <Yeah>. but, but <laughs> Um, let me, let me just preface it by saying this. I now get excited about founders that have recognized a nuance in a problem that nobody has seen before. I don't get as excited about the technology. We can talk about how cool AI is, how, how cool, you know, blockchain is and what its capabilities are. And me and you can sit here and probably brainstorm on some incredible ideas using those kind of tools. VR, robotics, I mean, it, the list goes on and on. We've seen a lot. But what we can't do, and where I think founders really have the upper hand advantage, is they have this experience that they see the world differently than everybody else does. Like they see congestive heart failure and the problems that we face in managing that in a different way, right? And they come to you and they're like, this is how I see the world. And by the way, it's almost now, by the way, to me, here's the solution, right? As soon as I see like, their appreciation of what problem they're solving, that's when I like my ears perk up and I get excited about what they're working on. I almost don't care about the technology. The technology is a tool to you know solve that particular problem. So with that being said, I'll highlight a couple of companies that I think have just really uncovered the nuances of, of, of the need. One is called Luma Health. In fact, Luma is a company that we're currently invested in for our venture fund, which is something else that we have to support. Companies. How do you spell Luma? L-U-M-A. Adnan is the CEO, great guy. It's a digital health tool to help guide patients through their care journey. And so you, you may have seen some of these platforms, but Luma has a really a different take. And it's, it's in the way that Adnan appreciates the patient journey. It's making it much more personalized with the patient at the center. You know, what are they going to experience when they walk into the hospital with not just clinically, like here's the clinical information you need because you were just told, you know, you have arthritis in your hip, but you know, how to think about the financial future of that particular journey, how to think about at its impact on your, your lifestyle or how you're going to have to see physicians now regularly, how to think about the medication that you're going to have to consider. What are your choices? And it's empowering the patient to be able to have control and oversight in their whole journey, which I really I'm excited about what Luma is doing. And as a primary care physician, I think there is so much interesting technology, but it kind of, it kind of falls into the fringes of specialty care. Mm -hmm. This is only for a cardiothoracic surgeon on this one particular valve. That's great. And that's technology we certainly need, but the crux of the care that's being given is in primary care. So I'll give you another example. One that, that recognizes the utility of uh, primary care in the mental health space. I think most people don't realize that 90% of patients that are depressed or anxious are getting treated by their family practice physician, not by a psychiatrist or a psychologist, right? They, there's, there's a stigma about going to those specialists. There's also just the trust factor that a lot of patients have with their primary care. 
And so there's quite a few companies in this space where they're empowering family practice physicians to feel better about treating those patients regardless of their severity. And so there's a couple of companies in that space that we're, I'm very proud uh, uh, that X has been able to support as well. Uh, one of them that's just coming on board right now is called Elios Health, E-L-E-O-S. Uh, I haven't had a chance to work with them at length yet because they're actually just joining TMCX. But what they use uh, via telehealth is a voice analytics platform. They can tell you right now how I'm feeling as I'm talking to you based on you know, my word speed, the nuance, the, the way that I'm using my words, which words I choose to use and speaking with you. So you can imagine as a physician, if I'm talking to you via telehealth and I know like as you're describing a certain part of your past, it's causing anxiety or fear or depression, then I, can, I know where to, to dig deeper and how to understand to help you. Or if I give you a question that, you know, it causes confusion or anxiety, then I know I need to clarify. And it's so important that we be master communicators in healthcare. I think that's where uh, we drop the ball often. We, we think that we, you know, part of it is not because of us, it's because we have to hurry up to our next patient. Um, but it's so important for us to make sure that the patient understands clearly what the problem is and how to manage it. Uh, if they walk away confused, we've, we've lost them. They're not going to be compliant. They're not going to come back. And if they do, it's going to be too late. So, so I think Elios is one of those in interesting companies that's making a big difference in master, mastering communication. Um, I can keep going on and on if you want. I have a lot oh, yeah. more companies. No, it's, <laughs> no, 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 I, I, yeah. And what I was going to say, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to want to have you back on, <laughs> you know, and, and, no, but what I think is great is that it shows, you know, cause I think of the other things that, um, especially again, going back to physicians, because I think there's just, there's this untapped resource there, you know, like all these great minds that have seen the same problem over and over and over again. And somebody has come up with some kind of solution to make something easier. But I think a, that, you know, it's very daunting, like living in Silicon Valley, I, I see how anything is really possible, but if you don't live here and you're not have any exposure to it, you really don't know where to start. And I think a lot of times um, when physicians, they think about like uh, health tech, right? They think about, you know, these big companies, like whether it's Teladoc or intuitive surgical or something. And a lot of times there's a lot of value in developing something that is simple as improving, let's say compliance and communication via an app. Right. And right. I think that that's the thing that, uh, you know, I, I wish they would teach more in medical school and it'd be great if they taught like a, you know, even a simple uh, elective of like intro entrepreneurship or innovation where it's like you can develop a minimally viable product and then build on, you know, build, build on that. So it, it, it grows. I mean, for paternal medical, you know, our device, I mean, I'm, I'm biased obviously, but it's, 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 it's a, it's a great device. Cause on one side it, you know, it's automating urine output, which is really rare, right? We give real time interabdominal pressure and then it's all going into our data science team and they're building a predictive algorithm. But if you go back in time, that's not that's not what Petrara was. Actually, here's, here's an interesting thing. They were two set completely separate companies, right? And had those companies not been started where they focused on these like really niche problems. And then our founder, uh, uh, Dr. Dan Burnett decided to combine them, right? It would have never existed. And I think people underestimate the value of really simple ideas that solve a very niche problem, scratch a very specific itch. And then those things end up growing and evolving into things that you could have never in your wildest dreamed, dreams imagined. Yeah, I, I've had the experience of kind of being in both worlds and, and now looking back and thinking to myself, man, I, I had ideas all the time, constantly popping up and and as physicians, we're taught to be highly self-critical and say, well, how can I can't validate this idea that actually will have any kind of effect. So you kind of suppress it and you don't right. really think about it, right? So you're, you're so focused on, there's no data to support whether or not that will work. Suppress the idea. Yeah. And, you know, it's those people that take the chance and say, I know this idea is, it doesn't have data to support it, or it seems like it's oversimplified, but I'm going to run with it and actually make a difference. I, that, that's where I think a lot of these entrepreneurs break through, right? And you actually get to a point to where it's meaningful. And, you know, when you look back, you're like, well, that, that's an easy idea. I wish I would have thought of that. Or I had yeah. thought of it, right? But somebody, um, else, you know, like, look, let's be honest, in, in the early to late 2000s, we all at one point looked at our phone and said, 
man, so, would it be so much easier just to order a taxi? Like everybody thought about it. <laughs> everybody did. But, but somebody, you know, somebody decided like, yeah, let's go ahead and just try it, right? And it, and it evolved, you know? And I, and I think again, like, uh, you know, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to see more positions like you. So aside from, you know, your, your role in innovation, you know, you, you put out a lot of content and you, um, you know, you essentially put ideas out there in the world uh, on LinkedIn for other people like physicians to see it. And then a lot of times you just need that one callus to see something in a different way. And you say, you know, I'm going to try, you know, for example, just starting a simple blog and writing, and then you never know the opportunities and things that come your way. Um, but I think there's this, this whole, there's a whole philosophy around ideation and ideas that I really appreciate. Like, you know, one of those things that so many ideas just die in your head. And I think the first thing you should do is, you know, don't be afraid, go talk about it with somebody. Right. I kind of, I think about innovators somewhat like prophets. They, they have this, this vision of the future that may not be shared by others. And oftentimes it's, everybody around you saying that's a stupid idea or it's unlikely somebody else already thought of that. Don't even worry, worry, you know, worry about it. But, you know, take this year, 2020, where telehealth has just been blown up. Right. I mean, the adoption is unbelievable as far as talk about scalability, but um, telehealth is not a brilliant idea. I mean, talking to your physician via video phone, I mean, that's something that I'm sure was considered in the seventies when we started to, to even think about video phones as the future. But what's interesting is that people disregarded it until today, until this year, right? And But you have all of these founders that have been preaching telehealth for so long. Like, we need this. This is going to be what unlocks access problems that we're facing today, mm-hmm. much less in the future, which now with the pandemic, it's even more blown out of proportion, right? And so it's like profits who are just preaching this future that they're trying to get people to understand, to see it the same way. I think as physicians, at, you know, we're, we're, we, we depend so much on the reality of data and making sure that we're very conservative. And so I told you earlier on, being an engineer kind of ruined me as a physician. Right. Being a physician ruins you as an entrepreneur, right? You're taught to be risk adverse, conservative, and take what's available evidence-wise and use it in practice. You're not taught to be blue sky. Let me think crazy ideas. Let me let me try this out. I mean, that you're not taught that way, and so you don't have this like divergent way of thinking. Uh, right. And so I think that's where there's a rub for physicians. As soon as they come up with an idea, they are taught to suppress it because it doesn't have any way to validate it. As opposed to entrepreneurs or physicians who have an entrepreneurial mindset where they're they're taught to run with the crazy, right? Absolutely. Like, hey, this this has legs. Let's go for it. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay which, which I think is really important. Which is, it's not all about the idea, right? And there's, right. A, there's a lot of execution. There's so yeah. many art, timing, luck. Exactly. But it starts there, right? And I, I think you're so right about that, Lance. Because like, you know, I was telling, uh, you know, uh, who one of my former classmates uh, called me a couple months ago, and he had a really great idea. And his, and, and I kid you not, the first thing he said, he's like, yeah, he's like, I was exploring this. He's like, but you know, I, I was kind of talking about it with a few of, few of the, uh, few of my friends and they, they don't know if it's like, if it's worth pursuing it. I'm like, well, what friends? And then he's like, well, some of the, some of the other doctors in my practice, I'm like the worst people to talk to, <laughs> they don't talk to your peers. I was like, don't, you know, like it's, it's kind of like, you know, why, if you're going to, I don't know, open a restaurant up, like you don't talk to a bunch of people who have never opened a restaurant. You know, like, you know, and I think, I think just talking again, talking to the right people and having the right exposure. And what I'm hoping is one of the positive effects of social media. So LinkedIn is one Twitter, uh, med Twitter is just amazing is these high velocity conversations and you get this exposure. And I think that just like with technology adoption, you know, they've shown in so many studies that a big part of that is whoever that segment is going to adopt that, that segment of people, them seeing other people like them doing it increases their chances of adoption and changing how they do things. And I think same with physicians is that the more they start to see, you know, someone like you, other people in, 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 in the medical community start to, you know, go purely in the innovation side or have one foot in clinical medicine, one foot in innovation, or, you know, there's so many, a variety of ways to do this. There's no one way to do it. It's just like when people say, Oh, to be a real entrepreneur, you got to quit your job and just launch your thing. It's not true. Right. Uber. So here's, here's an interesting fact. A lot of people, 
skipped out on the first two, I think even three, but definitely the first two rounds of uh, fundraising in Uber, mainly because the founders were doing it as a side gig and no one thought they were taking it seriously. Right. (laughs) Lesson learned. Yeah. Lesson. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Lesson learned. Somebody, I can't remember who, what entrepreneur was talking about, but they said that they were friends with those founders. They said that had they invested that 20 grand in, in the first round, that 20 grand was, would have been worth like 50 or 60 million, actually more now, but they were like, I just didn't take them seriously because they were doing it as a side gig. It's like Bitcoin, man. I should have invested. Oh in man. <laughs> yeah, I was all hot on that. I came in late in Bitcoin in like 2016 or 2017, but when it dipped, I said, I'm, I'm holding, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to forget about it. And I then came I, in I'm, right at the peak and then watched it fall. Crypto is great, but you know, it's, it's, it's coming back, you know, it's 2020. Yeah. It's making yes. a little bit of a bounce back. I'm, 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 ho- I'm hopeful. I'm just not a heavy investor at this point. Yeah, but you know, it's <laughs> it's just so funny how, um, you know, I think the one thing that happened in 2020, especially in medicine, but really everywhere, this is the first time in history where every single human being on planet Earth, let's just say America, every person in America at the same time was rethinking everything. Because all the systems we live in, uh, how we commute to work, communication, health, all they were really designed by people who are, for the most part, dead right now, right? These, you know, these systems were designed like decades ago, but we're still living in them, right? Like this notion that um, to to do to run a company, you have to have an HQ. That got blown out of the water. And so I think that the other exciting thing is with healthcare. I think that now from 2020, we've seen so many things that are possible. And I'm wondering how 2021 is going to look, you know, that's kind of a really broad question, but I guess for you, like, what were some, what were some systems or some, um, I guess, traditional mindsets that were just broken apart this year in, in healthcare and innovation? Is there anything that sticks yeah, out? I, you know, when I was going through training, telehealth was like, don't that that's ridiculous why would you not why would you not have to take the chance to or sorry not take chance but take the opportunity to do a good physical exam on a patient in person don't do telehealth it's a waste of time i mean i guess if it's the last resort you got to do it that that has been that mentality has been blown out of the water in 2020 i think through enabling technology we're able to do you know not everything but a, a lot of what we used to do in the clinic now remotely and right. we can do it cheaper. We can do it safer. We can do it, you know, with better access for the patient. I don't, I, you know, I think I, I'm, I don't want to say I'm glad. I think as a, as a, a positive consequence out of 2020, if there's anything, it's the realization that, you know, some of this technology has been in place for years actually just needs to be better utilized. I mean, you take the time to adopt versus, you know, it, being forced down our throats, so to speak. So yeah, or just an afterthought where it's like, yeah, we could do, but now it became a necessity, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's hard not to when you're in the weeds of clinical practice to not come up with a thousand reasons not to adopt new technology. I I completely understand that. I was in the transition between you know um, talking into a recorder to have somebody a transcriptionist type up your notes for you, and then you know, faxing those notes into the EMR, not EMR, the paper chart, and then going into an EMR. I, I was in that transition. And if you weren't adopting new technology, you were just frustrated every single day. If you weren't adopting, you know, uh, voice dictation like Nuance or something like that, you were you were struggling and you were spending hours uh, finishing your notes. As people are still doing that, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's, it's an enabler. And I think that's where it's hard for us to sometimes recognize that, it's going to take time to adopt and it's going to ultimately, or initially I should say, slow down your productivity, but just so that you can, you know, get an advantage from it later on, it's going to improve your productivity ultimately fold. So I think that's what 2020 has shown a lot of clinical medicine. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, Lance, I, I really appreciate you like getting on so late and it's getting close to like six. Yeah. Of the- you know, as we wrap up, I, I want to a- ask you some, you know, a few rapid fire questions. You can take as long as you want on these uh, questions or as short as you want. I'll just go to the next one. You ready? Sounds good. Let's go. Okay. So uh, first question to you is, you know, in your career, you've had uh, probably a, a variety of mentors, people that you look to for advice. What was the most painful advice a mentor ever gave you that, that really helped you a lot? Like who was it and what was that advice? Oh man, that's tough, Omar. The most painful. 
Uh, do I have to admit this on 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 television? <laughs> you don't have to, but it'll, it'll be it, it'll probably be better. Yeah, <laughs> that that helped you. That helped not just painful, painful, but it helped you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I had a mentor in family medicine residency. His name was Doctor Persons, and at the time, he was probably one of the most senior physicians in our clinic, and so he was probably 30, 40 years my senior, and so. Um, you know, I, I really looked up to him. I looked up to his experience. And so I, I kind of looked at him as somebody who validated, you know, whether or not I was doing things right. And he, and he told me one time, he's like, Lance, you, you have this tendency to want everybody to like you. And when it comes time, when, when the shit hits the fan and it comes time for things to, to, to go a certain way, you can't rely on that. You have to rely on your clinical tenacity, your understanding of the situation and people need to respect that, right? And if they're just your friends, there's, there's sometimes, you know, a tendency to, to forget who's in charge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I still struggle with that, by the way, Omar. I haven't learned my lesson, I think. But it really kind of brought to light, like, what's important to me? And how do I see my colleagues at work? How do I work with them? How do I, how do I become a better leader? Uh, one that, you know, is a servant leader, but at the same time is a leader that's respected. And somebody that, you know, I can help, uh, somebody can look up to me, you know, to, to, for advice or for leadership. So that was probably one of the hardest things uh, for me to hear from, from a mentor that I, that I, that I highly, highly uh, respected, but it was helpful. I'm so happy you shared that because I think there's, there's plenty of people who are listening to this who feel the same way. And especially uh, these days, I think there's this, there's a real big push to be very diplomatic about things, uh, a little kinder in each other, which I'm all for, but I think that's such great advice because at the end of the day, I mean, you can't make everyone happy. And I, I think it's, I think it's real. it's a good reminder for, for all of us. Absolutely. You know? Okay. Next question. Um, what, uh, what book do you feel that you most often gift or recommend? Oh, sorry about that. Um, that was my keyboard. Um, Let's see, there's, there's quite a few, and it depends on who the person is. If it's about business, if it's about just kind of understanding the entrepreneurial game and getting into that, I think there's nothing better than Zero to One by Peter Thiel. That's an incredible Great movie, book. and it's yeah, like, there. yeah, Great it's a necessity, right? Um, so so there's definitely that one. I'm trying to think of the, of the other ones that I gift. I, I, I got, I've been getting into, this is going to sound super nerdy, but I've been getting into quantum gravity. And that is the nerdiest thing I've heard all day long. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> and there's this amazing guy that that's, he, he's like the, the, the poet of physics, they call him. And he's been writing some incredible books. Um, one's called the order of time. His name is Carlo Rovelli. And I've been, I've been telling everybody I know about it. I'm like, you're not going to believe what this guy is writing about time. It's mind blowing. And it just like puts it puts things into such an interesting perspective for me that like, you know, there's so much going on around this and how we think about things is, is really comes down to the way that your brain works and how we've evolved. And so he takes time, for instance, and he talks about how it's stretched, how it's manipulated, how it doesn't exist at the quantum level, how it's, it's a very interesting read. And he, he writes a lot about physics. And really, you know, I, I look at him as somebody who's, taking a very technical topic and, you know, putting it in such a way that a lay person can understand it in quantum gravity. You know I mean? It can't be much technical than that. What's right? the name of the book again? So one's called the order of time uh -huh. and he's written, he's written, I think, I mean, he's written volumes, but there's two or three books that are really, if you, if you Google or sorry, Amazon is name, you'll find uh, really quickly. I just bought another one called the 12 brief, brief lessons of physics by him. I haven't read it yet, but. I'm, I'm adding it right now uh, to my list. Oh, reality is not what it seems, I think, is the first one I read by him. And let me tell you, I couldn't sleep at night, some of the stuff that he was saying. He talks about Ooh. black holes. and These are both highly rated. So if you were to recommend one for somebody to start with, it would be reality is not what it seems or order of time? Uh, reality is not what it seems. Okay. Fantastic. I'm adding, I'm adding that, you know, as you can tell, I have a habit of buying a lot of books, so. You know, <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> you know, books are very. I think it's it's a it's a very underrated technology. Physical books, it really is. All right, last question for you is: if for the next year, so we're going to start twenty twenty one soon. Um, 
for the for the rest of the year uh in for rest of 2021 that is um imagine that outside of every medical practice every hospital um all the physicians and nurses uh uh you know they everyone there is going to see a billboard all across the country and that billboard is going to have one message on it what message would you put there man um well i think it goes back to the conversation that we're having about you know physicians in general dampening great ideas because they're reluctant to understand or take the risk so i think it would be around take the risk right like today's the day don't sit on what may be a great idea what honestly may change the way we practice medicine right take 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 that risk and and be comfortable with it um we're, we're just we're just it's beaten into our minds not to be comfortable with risk to to to, to squelch it at every possible turning point but i think to be you know the, the next entrepreneur that's going to make a difference you got to be comfortable with that risk so that would be my message is take the risk Fantastic. I love that message. I think I couldn't think of a better way to wrap things up, but I'd say, Hey, thank you so much for coming, coming on the show. How can people find you? And I'll leave it in the notes. Yeah, please. Uh, email is the best way to communicate with me. L black at tmc.edu. Uh, of course on LinkedIn, I'm there, Twitter at Lance and black. Um, those are great ways to connect with me, but, um, but please reach out. I'd love to have a call with anybody interested in what we do. Perfect. I'll leave those in the show notes. Hey, Lance, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Hills and Valleys, and we will see you next time. Bye for now. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, Please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.